0: I remember the the literal moment I decided I'm out and it was when I was in my advisor's office and uh, i was working on new nu- numerical solutions to nonlinear wave equations um, which was basically writing code that would implement an algorithm that could solve a fairly complex uh, equation and it would take you know hours or days to run on a supercomputer and we were implementing this new theoretical solution that nobody had implemented before that's what would have made it a unique publishable result and we got somewhere with it and I showed him where I got with my first version of the code and he got really excited and he told me this is this is a big deal there's probably one or two research groups in the world that this will this will be a big deal to and and that made me realize that's that's like literally 10 or fewer people on earth that care or understand what I'm doing and and that just wasn't going to work for me
1: That was Ryan Rowe. In this episode, we talked to Ryan about how he went from academia to starting a company that investors were actually fighting to invest in. It went like this.
0: Um, We had a text on our phone, on my phone that said, uh, Hey, it's Peter Thiel. Um, Do you have time
1: to meet this afternoon? (laughs) Hey, I'm Kyle David, and you're listening to What is School for? We talk about how we learn as I look for what the future of education looks like. One of the biggest reasons I created this podcast was to think about how I'd like to educate my kids when I have them. This episode, like many, won't seem to be about school at all at first, which is kind of the point. Perhaps we learn best outside of traditional schools. Let's get started. very special guest, Ryan Rowe. He's here in person in Medellin, Colombia. And I have to say, some people are accomplished. Some people are fun. Ryan is both. He spent several years in China. Yes, he speaks Mandarin. And uh, inspired by WeChat Pay, he's now working on a uh, payments system. And before that, he started a company called Kimono. Kimono. And Kimono had almost the perfect startup story on the outside. And now we're going to dig into what the story actually was and his experience being CEO of a high-growth startup and being the talk of the valley. So, yeah. Ryan, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Kyle. Good to be here. Yeah, good, good to have you here. It's been good hanging out all week.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: So... um. Let's start with um, where you're from.
0: All right, yeah. Um, I grew up in California, uh, actually in Silicon Valley. So I'm, I'm very much a Silicon Valley baby. Both my parents worked in tech. My uh, dad worked at all the big tech companies, IBM, Apple, <laughs> Sun Microsystems. And um, my mom, she's actually a programmer. Uh, she started her own company doing grant management for the foundations in the area. There was a lot of money to give away and she was helping with that. Um, so yeah, I've, I've been working with computers all my life and I've, I've sort of been in the tech scene uh, by osmosis, not really consciously, but just growing up in that environment, I think inspired me in a lot of ways.
1: So you were working at Frog Frog uh, Designs, what's, what's the full name there? Yeah,
0: it's, well it's actually, the full name is just Frog. Um, frog, okay. I think it used to be frog design. They dropped the design at some point and they wanted it to be just frog because they're more than design, but, uh, mm-hmm. ev- everyone knows it is frog design. So, yeah.
1: So um, You're based out of uh, China for, I think three years. Was that right? Four years. Four years.
0: So, so yeah, the story, the story, uh, well, it's kind of interesting how I got, got into that. Um, I was, I was, I went to undergraduate at UCLA and I was studying math. I loved math for whatever reason. And, um, all, all I could think about was math, and all I was really um, planning for my future was just doing more, more of that. Like I didn't really do the whole career fair thing like everyone else, and I wasn't, um, I wasn't so much planning for you know with internships and all these things that that, that people do, and I, and I kind of was just doing research during the summers and stuff. So all my professors pretty much assumed I was going to become a math professor, um, and so I started applying to PhDs. Uh, programs, and uh, I, I got into to a few, and I was trying to figure out where to go. And actually, this is this is funny because this is how I met my co-founder Pratap of of our company Kimono, which ten years later we would we would start. Um, but but basically, I was I was traveling around the country looking at these different schools that I had gotten into. Um, PhD programs are are a total scam. They're, it's a great deal. You, you get paid to go to school. Um, and they wine and dine you to try to get you to go to their school over another school. It's unlike any other application process I've been through. Um, and so when I got to New York uh, to visit Columbia University, um, they they heard that I was deciding between Columbia and Stanford for my math PhD. And so they assigned Pratap to me. And uh, Pratap had gone to Stanford for undergrad. Um, he was studying physics, and then he was doing a physics PhD at Columbia. They combine um, physics and applied math there at Columbia, so so we would have been in the same program. So they're like, okay, Pratap, it's your job to convince this guy to come to our school and, and forget Stanford. You're you know you're the one person we have here who can give a you know a total account of of both schools and.
1: So he whined and dined you and took you out and. He
0: really did. The PhD um, date. It was a great PhD date, and uh, we went out on the town. We went partying in New York. That was my first experience in like a proper uh, city party scene and um, I was pretty much decided after that night. And once I once I started at Columbia, Protop and I decided to become roommates.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And um, so we were we were throughout our If I can
1: interrupt what yeah. what was the moment when you're like, this is the guy I want to hang out with the roommates with that that just changed ever I I, I seem to I believe that there's sort of this one, maybe not the first impression, but a first Great impression. What was that?
0: Yeah, I, there, there were there were a few with Pratap. He he was a really interesting guy, right? Grown up grown up in India, um, not just in India, but all around the world. Uh, his dad um, was actually at that time. The story was that his dad was his parents were diplomats, and so he grew up in different countries. What later was revealed to him and then revealed to me is that his dad was actually a spy.
1: Um, oh my God!
0: Yeah, and so he he was just a very interesting person, you know, who'd grown up couple years in Mauritius, a few years in Hong Kong, a few years in Delhi, moving around all over the place. Um, so he had a really interesting story, super smart guy, really fun, and he was also an avid triathlete. And I I, I was an athletic person. I had kind of done some running. Um, and for whatever reason, I, I decided kind of on that trip, I, I really want to get into triathlon. And so um, I just knew that, that we were going to hang out, and he was going to teach me how to train, and, and we were going to become triathletes together. Uh, so, so, yeah, so once, once I got and, there... And did you become We did, be a and, triathlete. And, and we, uh, we actually uh, co-founded the triathlon club at Columbia. Uh, I designed the, the uniforms for the team, and um, he recruited a whole bunch of people. It became a really vibrant club, and he actually went on to win the national championships as an individual because um, he's an extremely fast triathlete. Actually, at, at the time he was kind of on track to become um, an Olympian. He was aiming for uh, one of the Olympics that, that was coming up. Um, because he, he actually had done the math on on his progress and his own training and looked at the the numbers, and he is he was, he was cons- could have been considered the fastest triathlete in India. Um, so he was serious. He was going to do this uh he didn't end up doing it for 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 a number of reasons um i guess i'll leave that to him whether or not he regrets that but uh that that was it was a really good training partner
1: that, that's that's fascinating i've i found that finding co-founders is one of the most difficult things and it seems like you hit it off right away found the right person personally i think i'm like 2 for 7 yeah um and i think for most people listening realize that's it's really important finding that that right co-founder so uh then you got you didn't um complete your studies Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, sorry. I got on a tangent. The, the 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 whole point of this was to tell you how I got it got into Frog. Um and so when I was when I was doing my math PhD, I uh I hated it. I I really hated it. I, I remember sitting in class and just thinking to myself, this is a this is a miserable experience. Why? I can't wait till this class is over. I, I just all the material that I was learning, I, I had made a transition from pure math in undergrad to applied math in grad. Um, I studied applied math in undergrad some, but, but my interests and my research was, was all in the more kind of abstract real analysis and things. I loved that, uh, mm-hmm. aspect of math. And once I got into, um, the stuff at Columbia, it was very much physics, engineering, fluid dynamics, um, and it, I don't know. Just that stuff just didn't interest me in the same way. Some of the concepts were interesting, but but I just didn't didn't want to learn that stuff, and I didn't want to be there. And so I was constantly thinking, uh, how do I get out of this? Where mm-hmm. where should I go? But I but I'm also a competitive person. I'm I'm driven, and in, in the first year of a PhD program, it's extremely um, demanding, right? Because you you have to take a full load of coursework. You also have to be a TA. Um, to one or more classes uh, in order to get your stipend, and then and then you have to study for your qualifying exam at the end of the year, which mm-hmm. is the big. Are you going to be accepted to continue here or not? Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to just kind of decide. Oh, I'm not. I'm not cut out for this. So so mm-hmm. I, I took it really seriously, and I decided I'm going to pass this qualifying exam, even if I'm going to quit the day after. Like I'm, I'm going to do this. Uh, and it was a, it was a pretty rough year. Like uh, we we basically sat in a basement un- under, you know, at the. Negative fourth floor of the math and physics building at Columbia, and just eighteen hours a day, just studied. Mm-hmm. Um, it was hard. Made some good friends, but eventually passed the qualifying exam. And but did you
1: quit the next day.
0: I decided to quit the next day. It took me. It took me a few months to get out of Correct. it. Um, okay. I basically transitioned into the computer science department and started doing research on social network analysis. Um, which I thought, oh, this is this is cool, this is different. But I eventually kind of realized academia, just in general, wasn't for me. Uh-huh. And so,
1: so so the funny thing about you not enjoying the math PhD is, one, I, I know just from this week, you're super excited. You're like, Kyle, I need a pen and paper. I need to solve. I got this uh, math problem I need to solve. And sure, like I yeah. haven't seen someone ask for a pen and paper to solve a math problem since college. You're super stoked about it. And the other hand, I asked you if you were a spreadsheets guy, and you're like, nah, no spreadsheets. Yeah. Which is that's kind of bizarre. So for someone who's maybe in college now thinking about getting a PhD, could you have did you know anything back then that would made you made you say that this wasn't for me, like math PhD, I could've skipped this thing and I, done I think, something else. Is there something that you could have known or someone in college now wouldn't be able to see if they're suitable or not?
0: Yeah, I think I think the most important aspect here is is probably just the academic Industry, um, I know it's not called an industry but but just that entire world. Once I became privy to how that worked and what the incentives were and what the motivations were for people to be there, I, I realized it didn't fit into that.
1: Do you have a specific bullshit story that uh
0: it's it's just the 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 simple fact that it's all about um, publishing uh, it's all about citations. it's all about you know getting your name in in certain publications and and the politics around that. And the more you publish, the better off you are. And there's not there's not a huge incentive to make those particular published results, you know, more impactful and interesting than others. I think that the, the moment at which I I remember the the literal moment I decided I'm out. And it was when I was in my advisor's office and uh I was working on num numerical solutions to nonlinear wave equations, um, which was basically writing code that would implement an algorithm that could solve a fairly complex uh, equation, and it would take, you know, hours or days to run on a supercomputer. And we were implementing this new theoretical solution that nobody had implemented before. That's what would have made it a unique publishable result. And we got somewhere with it. And I showed him where I got with my first version of the code, and he got really excited, and he told me, "This this is a big deal. There's probably one or two research groups in the world that this will, this will be a big deal to, and and that made me realize that's that's like literally ten or fewer people, on Earth, that care or understand what I'm doing, and and that just wasn't going to work for me, you know. I <laughs> that's really,
1: that's really funny, that's really funny because so okay so you're like all right there's got to be something else
0: yeah there's got to be a way to make a bigger impact you know and and, and kind of as a parallel thread, I had been teaching myself. Uh, how to how to program specifically web pages. I just loved the fact that you could make something and see it instantly. You know, there's lots of computer science and stuff you do and, and it's algorithmic or you're writing, you know, systems and things like that. And you're not really seeing the tangible result in, in real time. And, and with web programming, um, it was just I made something that people could use and see and I loved it.
1: And uh, there was no one grading you on that? Yeah, not uh, that particular activity. I, I mean, I was just the kind PD of, building.
0: If, yeah, friends needed a website for themselves or for their business or something, I would kind of offer to, to help or, or do it. Sometimes I charge, much, most of the time I didn't. Um, but that inspired me to take this course. Sorry, this is a really roundabout way of getting to how I got to Frog. Yep. Um, but I took this course called User Interface Programming. Um, because it, it just, I realized that's, that's what I was enjoying about the work I was doing. And, and that's where I learned about the history of, of user experience and user design, um, and and user interface programming in general. And then we, we we did some practical things like learning how like what are the conventions um, when you're building a UI, and, and you're, what are the things to think about by making something, you know, usable. And I loved this class. I just loved it. And everyone was wondering why why are you taking this? This has nothing to do with your PhD. But I just I loved this class. And um, I was telling actually my ex-girlfriend who lived in San Francisco on the phone one day how much I loved this class. And she, she had recently met a guy in San Francisco at a bar who worked for Frog. And she said, you know, that sounds a lot like what this guy that I met in this bar does for, for a job. And I was like, wow, I I honestly did not realize that there was a job that did this thing that I was loving. Um, And so I asked her to put us in touch, which she did. And we had a Half hour phone conversation, and he put me in touch with frog new york and I talked to them, and then they brought me in for an interview and they they offered me a job um which didn't make any sense and w- when they were offering me the the job, my first boss there, he actually reiterated this this makes no sense that we're hiring you, but for some reason we just have some feeling um, we y- you have no experience, you're coming from a math background, you're probably not going to fit in. But but for whatever reason, we we just think this is this is a, a risk worth taking, um, and I'm glad they did, and they're glad they did. Um, I ended up staying at the company for seven years, um, for the first the first three in New York, and then the next four in, in Shanghai. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, wow, I had no idea about your math background at all. So, uh, just so listeners know, even though he sounds like incredibly smart, he's also incredibly down to earth in person. So, <laughs> Ryan's a really down to earth person. Um, all right. So, you were, so Frog, um, th- th- you told me about a story where you're working for a telecom, somehow related also to your payment startup now, mm-hmm. where you had a project. Maybe you can tell me about that project and how that made you decide to start a company.
0: Yeah, totally. Um, so, for so for those of you that aren't familiar with uh, with Frog and and just the the industry of creative consulting, basically, what what we did and what Frog does is is work with uh, organizations, small and large, on basically uh, designing a product, and and that starts at the at the research phase, um, usually with some sort of prompt, like we want to sell this type of product. Uh, you know, a, a television or something um, to this group of people in this market. Oh, we want to sell it in Japan and Korea, or we want to sell it in the U.S. Um, and and the company, you know, might be something like Samsung or Sony. Um, it's a major brand that already has products in the space, but they're looking for you know innovative ways of introducing new products. And rather than doing that in-house, they they often hire companies like Frog to kind of uh, go through that creative process with kind of an outsider's lens. And so at my time at Frog, I worked in many, many different industries. Um, I did a lot of consumer electronics, because that was kind of my specialty. Uh, but but I also did some service design. I focused on retail. Um, like like you just mentioned, Kyle, I did um, this, uh, this payments project. So it was kind of all across the board. And what was cool about this particular project, um, which was in Singapore, we were working with um, a major telecom and, and a major bank who had partnered, um, kind of at the advice of their management consultants, um, to create a mobile money product for the Singaporean market. But that's like I said, like all of the prompts that we usually got at frog, that was the extent of what they were told. And so they kind of show up at frog and they say, now, now what? And that was our job. So we were a team of, I was the, uh, associate creative director. So I was kind of running the project, um, and we, we had a number of design researchers. We had um, digital designers. So and- tell me about
1: the process of actually finding out what the customer problem was because this is something that's very funny that entrepreneurs do where we get obsessed with our solution to a problem or we have one problem where like someone someone needs to solve a problem of dripping ice cream so I'm going to make like non-drip ice cream or something like that. Yeah. But it might not really be a problem or for very many people. And the process of and you've been teaching me a bit this week about how to interview customers and understand what they actually want, because you can't say like, "Hey, Ryan, what do you want? What oh, problems yeah. do you have that doesn't That doesn't absolutely. really work. And as an entrepreneur you it's very tempting to take the first problem and turn it into a solution and then make that and try to raise money on it. And, absolutely and your ego, my ego, really gets in the way of being like this this is the right thing, you know mm-hmm. So in some ways you have to be very bullish about your idea. As an entrepreneur, you have to really believe in it, even though it's probably a pretty stupid idea to begin with. Yep. But you also need to be able to distance yourself from it and and research. So tell me about that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So th- this is this is true for both entrepreneurs and designers. Um, you know, if you're a designer working in a company like this, you have the same problem, right? You you, you have to constantly balance your conviction in I know what's best because I'm a good designer, um, and sometimes that's what wins, right? Uh, with your, you know, questioning yourself and, and your assumptions, because they may be wrong, right? And, and you can't, you, and the most important thing is you can't jump to a conclusion on a solution. Um, and, and and that that comes in many forms. Um, but basically, if you're presented with what you think is a problem, like for instance, you have a, a you know, we need, we need to give a mobile money product to the people of Singapore, right? And if you just look at that on the surface, you're going to make all sorts of, of assumptions about that. For example, okay, well, right now, if we if we just kind of like do some market research and look at how you know credit card adoption, different payment methods, um, what's the uses of cash look like, where where is cash used most? Um, you, you, I can tell you that that what we saw in our first week of just very top down research. A lot of cash gets used in Singapore. Top-down research, meaning looking at uh, reports. Yeah, looking at reports, just doing doing online research, competitive research, seeing what's out there. Not really talking to anyone, but more just seeing um, what's the state of uh, you know of affairs in um, in in Singapore. And, and it's a particularly easy market to do that for. Um, you know, it's it's very small. There's about five million people. English is the, the main spoken language. It's, it's just very easy to, to get that kind of information. It's well-documented. It's a very tech-forward, tech-literate um, culture. If you're trying to do the same type of research all across China or something, it, it would be a lot harder. Um, so anyway, we, we found out these these basic things, which were unsurprising because we had been there several times on business trips and kind of knew these things anecdotally. Oh, taxi drivers hate it when you try to pay with their credit cards, you got to pay them cash, you got to pay the street food vendors in cash, they won't accept credit cards. It's like, you got to have cash on you, it's just like a thing there. Um, so our assumptions were, well, we got to fix that because that sucks and it's inconvenient and people don't like cash. Um, it's slow and you have change and you got to sit there and count it. And then the guy might not have the right change. He's got to go ask the food store next door for, you know, correct change, all this stuff. So all of this time can be saved. can also make it a lot easier for people, um, to kind of, uh, more quickly pay, right? Uh, so they, they, they just pull out their phone and, and pay or, or maybe it'll be easier for people to settle debts with each other. Um, you know, this is, this is pre, you know, Venmo or, Things like that, but this is, this is the kind of stuff that we had on our mind.
1: So your assumptions from top-down research were we need to make it easier, faster, more convenient for people to pay.
0: That's right. Exactly
1: that. And then what?
0: And then, um, so the next phase of the research is to get on the ground um, and talk to as many people as you can uh, in, in the different kind of uh, market segments that, that, that the, our client was, was hoping to sell this product to um which i think more or less was everyone in singapore that was their goal you know become the ubiquitous payment solution for singapore of course of course that would be the ultimate uh, success story so so basically the first thing we did was we we cut everyone up into different personas um so that so that we could kind of target the groups of people we were talking to um with with some intention rather than being like okay we're just going to grab 100 random people and talk to all of them um we broke them down into things like the student you know so so we, we tried to look for people that were you know 18 to 22 they're they're in university or something and, and they have a certain lifestyle um, we try to talk to maybe ten of them um, and then we, we we would look for uh, the young professional right so somebody who's um, maybe in their early 20s late 20s um, they're they're moving up the corporate ladder and they've, they've got a lot more disposable income we want to see how they you know, work with money and think about money, young families and, and so on.
1: So which um target did you have your biggest realization in?
0: You know, to be honest, it was kind of across the board, which was really crazy. They they, they were all different in their own little idiosyncrasies, but um I think I think the most powerful uh thing that, that, that we learned about the Singaporean consumer market with respect to money and finance w- w- was, it, it w- well, it was a few things. One one is that they're, uh, they're a very um, financially literate group of people. We spoke with 18-year-old you know, first-year university students who understood all the nuances of credit and the stock market and all of these things um, and uh, knew that you know what the different interest rates meant and, and all of these um, aspects of, of optimizing their, their own kind of spending and, and wealth.. Um, but but along with this um, financial literacy is also this sense of responsibility. Um, it, people didn't want to spend irresponsibly. People didn't want to spend money they didn't have. People didn't want to spend more than they probably should be given their income, you know?
1: Right, so you're finding that, I remember that it was, actually they didn't want it to be easier to spend. They wanted it actually to be harder, There to be a barrier yeah. spending right
0: yeah actually yeah so that's so that's that's ultimately be the kind of uh, insight that we came up with based off of all of these findings was that all of our assumptions about let's make paying faster let's make it more convenient let's make it feel like it's not even happening you know and your money's just slipping out of your out of your phone to the coffee shop um people were 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 choosing to use cash over credit card for the exact opposite reason they They wanted to to grab a wad of cash on Monday morning out of the a t m and they wanted to track their their spending over the week with that wad of cash and every time they had to pull out a bill, give it someone, they wanted to feel that transaction
1: feel the pain of it
0: yeah, feel the pain, feel that money leaving them you know they worked hard for that money, and they want to make sure that you know what do I really need to spend this mm-hmm. right is is the moment they wanted to have at the point of sale
1: right and so you came up with the solution that Involved helping them track their finances better in ways they couldn't even with cash, and slicing and dicing it up, you present to um, the CEO. What happens? Yeah.
0: So so this was this was a really interesting um, outcome. Is we we were really excited about this, right? Because we, we we felt like this research actually paid off. You know, we did this research on many different projects, and sometimes you come you come back with all of your assumptions validated, right? Which is not a bad thing, but it's not as exciting. And here felt like we were really on to something because that means we we, we know something that nobody else does. And so we present these findings and we present the plan and we present the product idea, um, which is, as you mentioned, it's this sort of combined uh, financial management, um, budget tracking, everything with your payment method so that it's all one cohesive unit of, of understanding your, your financial picture as a consumer. And the the, the, the feedback in the, in the reception was good, but the way Singtel went ahead and, and implemented, um, this solution was, uh, yeah, not, uh, n- not the way we would have done it. Um, so he actually, uh, the first thing that happened was that the CEO had visited, uh, CES in, in, in Las Vegas, right. Um, and saw this company called b which, uh, allows you to grow your own uh, butterfly character on your phone. And your other friends can do that, too, who have this app. And then you can send your butterfly off your phone, and it'll fly away. And it'll fly onto other friends' uh, apps on their screen if they're in the vicinity. I don't think this went anywhere, but he actually acquired the company um, and kind of mandated that we incorporate this technology into our payments application (laughs) design (laughs) Um, with the kind of vision Oh, we can make this really beautiful interaction where you kind of slide money from one phone to the next phone, physically, mm. and 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 this just had nothing to do with our research, and it just had. I, I don't think consumers
1: wanted something like that. Um, so this is the frustrating thing about being a consultant, right? Is that you come up with, you learn something, whether you're at McKinsey or you're at Frog, and it's not up to you to implement it. It's someone else's decision good or bad. It's a bit frustrating because your baby, you give your baby over to someone and, and then what happened in this case, right, was that the payments, um, solution didn't go anywhere for them. The competitor took over the market and.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I just looked it up the other day and, and the product still exists, but you know, I lived in Singapore last year actually for six months and it's not, you know, (laughs) It's not the thing everyone uses it's not it, you know it didn't live up to the expectations and and yeah, I think that happened to me so many times across so many different projects, so many different clients where I invested so much and i I saw so clearly what we needed to do, um, but for whatever reason the project got killed, it got butchered it got um, implemented poorly whatever right and and you can't really blame these these organizations because they're they're not set up in the way that that we were uh, yeah. You know, expecting and, and you know, I think there's a better better model for that, um, for what it's worth. But I think that's where I came to the realization that, you know, if I just went through this same process, I just did this whole thing, and I and I saw so clearly what people needed. Why don't I just trust myself to to deliver on such a thing? You know, um, and that's that's what inspired me to to, to think at least think about leaving, mm-hmm. and and do my own my own thing.
1: So, you were brainstorming a a whole bunch of ideas. I think with Pratap, right? Yeah. You had you actually had a little spreadsheet on it. He was a management consultant at the yeah. time. Big spreadsheet guy. He's a bright spreadsheet guy. Good, love him. And you're just thinking through ideas. Um, that was your process. You just put a bunch of ideas on a list. I've done this before. none, none of them have actually worked out that I put on a list, weirdly enough. Yeah, but was, the list
0: thing, I don't know. Some people actually swear by this method. Um I actually had it uh one of the he's actually now the CEO of, of Y Combinator, Michael Siebel. He was one of mm-hmm. our investors and, you know, uh advisors and, and, and the partners, one of the partners that we worked with often at Y Combinator, but and, and he told me more recently when I said, Oh, I kinda I think I want to do another company He said just find someone to work with and start brainstorming. Like, just start brainstorming ideas and, and digging into what, what industry do you want to work on and, you know, more or less, make a spreadsheet and mm-hmm. see where that takes mm-hmm. you. And I, I was really surprised to hear that, you know? Um, but, but yeah, basically, Pratap and I, this, this comes, like, kind of full circle to the beginning of the story. Pratap and I had actually been talking on the phone for the entire time uh, between uh, our time in Columbia and... This point in my career at Frog, seven years later, uh, where we, we, we kind of loosely were planning on on joining forces and, and starting a company or doing something together because we just knew, you know, we had these very different skill sets. We'd been friends for such a long time. Um, we shared kind of big, big vision ideas. Um, and there was actually a third guy at the time who was involved in this sort of process. What happened, what happened to him? Um, so he worked. Uh, might still, but at the time he was working at Goldman. He was one of, um, this guy was absurdly brilliant. He, he finished his PhD at Columbia and probably the fastest time ever. He actually published a book while he was doing his PhD and he was hired at Goldman as, as a, a special type of quant of which there were only four in the world. And I think he was pulling in over a million dollars a year at this point. And, 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 and he was, his wife was pregnant and it just, it just did not make sense for him to be like, okay, I'm going to give up the income. <laughs> I'm going to leave my family. Um, I'm going to come you join your ragtag situation in California.
1: Did you have a sense from the beginning that he wouldn't make it on the team? Mm,
0: it, it was unclear. Like he, he was always transparent about where he was. Okay. Um, he, did, he did actually meet up with us. Uh, so, so basically how I ultimately pulled the trigger on leaving Frog was Pratap, in some sort of fit of rage or fury, he, he, he was like, all right, I'm, I'm quitting McKinsey." I've had enough of this. And he gave me a call and he's like, all right, I quit. You've got about six months to decide. Cause if you don't, I've, I've got to do something else, get a job or whatever. And so I kind of arranged a sabbatical. Actually, it wasn't, I, I wasn't, I was a little, you know, dipping my toe into the water. So I took six months to, um, hang out. And the first thing we did is we called this third guy, it gore. And we said, let's all meet in California. And, um, let's, let's just like hack on something together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just see how that feels. Mm-hmm. See where it takes us, see if see what the working dynamic's like, see if the three of us can produce something of limited value, whatever in a short time. I like time. I like
1: this idea of how you how you pulled the trigger on it, and how you all met up in person. Um, it's it's so difficult to make these really there's these really tough decisions you make in life, like which school should I go to or which what should I do as a career afterwards and then when you're in a career and it's going pretty well. Like it's definitely well above average, but there could be something better. How do, you, how do you pull that trigger? And it's it's great to hear how you guys did that and actually met up and took, you know, it was a significant cost and time to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, several several hundred, maybe thousand dollars, et cetera. So you had an idea originally where you're going to make it easier for, if someone's going on a flight, they can see what, um, what movies are playing while they're on the flight, right? Mm-hmm. Is this something that came out of, this just, was
0: this was the uh, week long exercise with the three of us. So um, you
1: came up with this.
0: The constraints on this this was a, this was a different spreadsheet. Mm-hmm. This was not the startup idea spreadsheet. This was the what can we do in a week together spreadsheet. And we were evaluating different things and industries and types of projects and whatever. The kind of the goal we gave ourselves is seven days. Um, we're going to be at my parents' house in, in California. This is just before Christmas, so it's, it's a chill time. Like our work was. You know, not busy, and and it was let's 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 ship a product um, by the end of that seventh day. That's the goal. So and 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 we flew we flew there with with the kind of the spreadsheet, but that's it. So the first I'd say forty eight hours was just us discussing what should we do, right? Um, So that was the first couple days. We then, align, we, we then aligned on uh, this project that, that you just mentioned, which is, um, we called it AirPapa. It was, it was a pretty cool name. We, got, we were able to get airpapa.com, and we, got a, we made a little logo that was, uh, I like that logo a lot. And um, basically all it is, is you, you, you type in your, your flight information, um, you know, that comes in the form of like a flight number and an airline or whatever. And it tells you the movies that are playing on that flight and the type of entertainment option Um, At the time, you know, there were a lot of these flights still where the the TVs were kind of hanging above the aisle and you didn't get your own TV. Sometimes there was no entertainment whatsoever. Sometimes you had your own TV, but you had to pay for the movies, right? So we we gave you that information plus what the movies were, their Rotten Tomato ratings, things like that. And this was definitely not meant to become a company. You know, this wasn't like a monetizable idea, but it, it was more... Okay, this is an interesting problem. We gotta get this data somewhere and we gotta present it in a nice interface and we, we have to launch this thing.
1: It's kinda of, it's funny that you chose to think about what can we do in seven days. Because most a lot of brainstorms are around such big things and you chose something was there someone who gave you that advice of do something in seven days together?
0: No, it was it was actually a constraint that was imposed just by the fact that we lived in the three corners of Earth. Um for top lived in California. Osgore lived in London and I lived in Shanghai and we, we only had that much time. Okay. <laughs> um, so, so it was like, if we're going to do something together, it has to, it has to be time constrained in this way because, because this is, uh, and, and I'm telling things a little bit out of order, but this is before we had left our jobs. This is, this is a few months before we decided to leave our jobs. So this was like the pre-leave experiment and it went well. We, we launched it. Um, and shared it with our friends on social. Network. Tried to learn about you know SEO and 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 getting you know Facebook likes for the for the thing. And we made announcements when we would add a new airline and things like this. You know, we we were kind of like learning the, the ropes of of how you do these these things. Even though we kind of treated this project like a toy like a toy project.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting that uh, yeah, I didn't realize you fleshed out the whole thing and, and launched it. And then you learned something pretty interesting in the process about how you scrape how to scrape data from airline websites, how difficult that is, yeah. how long did that take and go, that was, go through like what that was
0: that was probably that's that was probably the bulk of the effort of the of the remaining five days of that week was um you know I was the most technical of the three uh osgore like i said is is a genius, so uh we we basically gave him random uh program, like, algorithm problems, like, oh, uh, given two airport codes, tell us uh, the um, flight time and directionality. Like, is it east to west? Is it north to south? Whatever, because some of the airlines actually had rules where it was like, oh, if you're flying east to west, it's these movies. If you're flying west to east, it's these movies. And so we actually needed to automate the decision-making on that, given just a flight number. So he had this, like, crazy thing where he came up, where he, he had the, like all the airports around the world and you'd calculate the Euclidean distance between the two and all these things. And so he would come up with those things. Um, he also did something for the, the movie names to, to, to provide fuzzy match because we found that a lot of the airlines would list movies and they'd like, just not use the right name. Like they would slightly change it or something like that, right? They, they would like leave out a, the the at the beginning or they would leave out something else, right? And so we needed to have some reasonable confidence that the movie we were looking at on Rotten Tomatoes was the same one that we were looking at on this airline website. And again, we wanted to automate that, of course. So he, he implemented the Levenstein string distance equation to, to actually... It say that again? What the, is that? I think it's called the Levenstein string distance. Um, so it basically just allows you to compare two strings um, and, and get a score for how uh similar they are, right? And I think this is how modern kind of fuzzy search works, you know, when you type something slightly off and it's like, did you mean this? or or whatever. Right? It's just some like version of that. Um, so we gave him problems like that and he just ate them up and came back with like, here's your function. It does the thing. Um, I kind of built the website and built the um crawlers and stuff like that. And Protop was like responsible for going out and getting you know, sourcing all the, finding all the data, being like, these are the URLs, these are the, this is how this one works, this is how this one works, you know, going from airline to airline and and figuring out all these different uh, parameters, writing copy, um, because there's a lot of copy to write on the website for like, oh, this is how it works, like blah, blah, blah. Um, And I don't know, was I just answering a question?
1: Yeah, so there was, you, um, when you were doing this, you figured out how difficult it was to scrape the data. Oh, yeah. Because it was so easy on Rotten Tomatoes. Yep. Because it was just an API. Yep. but the airlines they were in PDFs they yeah. were, the data was everywhere
0: it was crazy it was crazy every every airline website without fail uh stored this data and and provided access to this data in a totally different way um and like you said some somewhere in PDF um Somewhere on on uh, they were hidden behind forms that you had to fill out like oh this is my flight and my time and these are the two cities and then it would come back with a list for you right so it was an actual interactive interface that gave you the the movies there were others that just did this whole giant list but it would break things down to east to west west to east and um, so so we had to figure out how to extract that data in an automated way because we you know those movies changed on a regular basis, and we needed the app to reflect the correct information um, for the given flight. So if the flight was this month versus next month, you might get different movies, right? Um, So so in order to do that, you need to scrape that data, right? Because you you could manually go to these pages and copy and paste it all by hand, but that's not scalable, and that's not a technology solution to the problem, so what you have to use is uh, web scraping. And so we, we found a library called Beautiful Soup, um, a Python library. That kind of inspired our reason for building the, the back end in Python. Um, none of us had... Oh, the other reason why we chose Python is it was the one language none of the three of us had used. And so we wanted to kind of e- e- even the, the playing field for the three of us so we could equally contribute code um, without having an advantage. Because if, if we did the thing in Node.js, for example, like I would have written the whole thing ten times as fast as them and, and we wanted to kind of all be contributing in, in this language and maybe learn something along the way, right?
1: It's very interesting reasoning.
0: Yeah. So probably not good reasoning if you're trying to start a company.
1: but Maybe. It doesn't totally logically make sense, but in the big picture, the story does. That everyone's contributing equally to a startup is probably... Something that can definitely save your startup in terms of the interaction between co-founders. And that's very if true. If someone's pulling more weight than someone else, that that actually might be worse than be moving faster mm-hmm. um, or moving slower. That um, so you had you learned figured out how to scrape all this information. You realized everyone needs to scrape information. And how long into this did you pivot to?
0: So so yeah, it was kind of. Um... The timing, the timing was a little bit weird, so, so we did this experiment, got excited about it, um, but then we went, went back to work, like I said, um, and that's when Pratap, a couple of months later, quit, and was like, okay, I'm ready to do this, like, um, what are we going to work on? And I was like, okay, I need to get my, my sabbatical in line, which I did after a couple of weeks, and he, he flew out to China, um, met me, and that's where he, he came with the bigger spreadsheet, the big spreadsheet. The startup spreadsheet. Like this is what we're really gonna do. Um, of course, this and ex- some extension of this uh, Air Papa thing was on there, but uh, neither of us took it that seriously, and we, we didn't really think it, it had uh, great, you know, business opportunity around it. So, spreadsheet had all my, manner of things on it, you know, that I had contributed to, that Protop had contributed to, that Osgood had contributed to, um, and as as we we traveled around, we, we started in China, but then we, we decided to go around Southeast Asia because I, I had a strong interest in in starting a company in, in, in a more nascent uh, startup ecosystem and I had been living in Asia and I really liked it out there. So Protop agreed, okay, we'll, we'll check out these cities, but you know at the end of the day, if we want to make a tech build a tech startup, we got to go to Silicon Valley. Uh, and
1: people were giving you that feedback as well. They're like, if you're American, why would you start a company in Shanghai, Singapore? Yeah,
0: it was crazy. Like everywhere we went, it just kind of my heart sank a little bit more because my 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 fantasy of starting a company in one of these um, far off, exciting places just just kept getting shot down by these people locally who were like, "What are you? You're you're American. You 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 can literally go and start your company in California, and it's not a barrier. Why would you do that anywhere else? Like just the amount of." talent the amount of investor money the amount of brain trust like this just you need to be there and and i think we heard that enough times that i had no argument against for top anymore um, but we, we were evaluating and narrowing down this list of ideas and there's this one that never went away that was there was uh i think we we titled it web scraper builder um and it kept making the cut you know as we you know Pratap was very analytical, so it was Not like, the
1: sexiest idea, but you not knew it was a Not the sexy problem.
0: idea, but it kept, it kept making the cut. And, and, we, and we were wondering why it kept making the cut, because a lot of the, the reasons why things got cut, it was, it was you know, Pratap wasn't that interested in it, or I wasn't that interested in it. We really needed to find something we both saw potential in, but also um, were kind of interested in. Um, What's
1: amazing to me is that you guys stuck together. It wasn't like, well, we're either doing this, it's either my way or the highway. There, w- there wasn't any of that, which is yeah. pretty incredible. I'm not sure what it says about you or how you guys felt about each other that you knew you wanted to work together on this.
0: I think this was I think this was uh, a really good and powerful thing that went on to um, being very important um, in in the way our company came about and also uh, things like our Y Combinator interview and things like that. I think that came across as a very positive aspect to our relationship. You know, it was one of those things where they, that was the given. We're doing this thing together. What it is, we'll figure it out. But and, and and like I said in a more recent conversation with Michael Siebel, that seems to be the way that um, at least he recommends going about things. Um, I do think that that came with some some negatives as well, though, right? Uh, if you if you enter a partnership where where that's the most important aspect, you're going to end up making compromises on what you're working on, right? And if you end up working on something that you're not necessarily passionate about on a deep level because the more important thing was to work with the other person, that's going to come back to bite you. And and, and and we'll get to that point in the story, I promise.
1: Mm-hmm. All right. So I, I, stepping back one bit is that I, I just love the process you had where you built something, the three of you. Intending that it was never going to actually happen because I've had so many times where I've talked to friends about this startup idea, that startup idea, right? I'm sure everyone has listening to this, but you just built it without the plan of actually doing it necessarily. Um, It's almost like a a homework assignment in some way. It was kind of like practice. You're like shooting free throws at the gym, basically, shooting layups. I, I think that's fantastic. It's a fantastic model that I think any of us could apply. When we're thinking about doing something, is being like, okay, here's a person I want to work with, and let's just build something in a week. And you could do that four times in a month, and you'll get somewhere pretty fast. I think that's a pretty cool. Mo- I haven't heard of that somewhere else before, by yeah, the way. Yeah. No, it, of it. People coming across the world to work on something for a week. And I
0: hadn't either. And I, you know, to be honest, I haven't done it again since. And and you're you're starting to get me thinking. I, I probably should. That that was a really that was a really fruitful. Um, exercise in, in for so many reasons, you know. Um, but 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 to get back to to what you were asking on how we how we got there how we got to the to the scraping idea how we ultimately selected it um, actually had a lot to do with the um, the sort of discussion that was going on at Frog at the time um, with respect to to larger design trends and technology trends and there was basically this th- there's this guy who who worked at frog who's the chief creative officer Mark Rolston. he's he's moved on to start his own creative agency and I think they they focus on this this same dialogue now um, but it's about the invisibility of technology and and about how the future of interfaces and the future of of interacting um, with any service or any product is 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 going to be about de-emphasizing the technology involved putting it into the background like you're not directly facing the user with here's the technology that's doing the thing it's about that just doing this beautiful thing that you didn't even know was happening and it's just making using such and such project or such and such service just seamless right Mm -hmm. perfect example of this is something like uber um where you pull out your app, you look for a phone, uh, you know a car. You say, "This is where I'm going," and that's it. Like everything kind of happens magically. Like you can the magic moment in 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 an Uber ride when it first when it first came out in San Francisco was stepping out of this car and just walking away. Like you you didn't have to pull out your wallet and ask how much and deal with a tip. Like it just you just walked out of the car, and and that's that's an example of technology just. Invisible technology making a beautiful experience happen, right? Um, and this dialogue was going on with at Frog, and I was really fascinated by it. And, and I realized, as I thought more and more about this, I was like, well, what's going to enable, on a large global scale, something like this to happen in any context, right? What's, you know, I, I guess to use from earlier in the week, what's the shovel uh, for this movement, right? Right.
1: Uh. That's referring to gold miners selling them shovels rather than panning for gold, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: yeah exactly. So, so you know, the, the, thing, the, the businesses that really blew up during that time were, were the people that were selling the shovels, not the people that were spending their time um, panning for gold. And, and so this was the same strategy. This was, okay, well, what's the one thing you need to do in order to enable beautiful technology experiences that are invisible? Well, you need interfaces... To, to uh, get data about something, or you need to be able to interact with that data in some way, um, in a programmatic way, so that it can happen kind of behind the scenes. And you know, Uber made a version of this by, I'm exchanging, you know, money with this other person through this network of of users where there's a buyer and a seller, and they're basically creating a marketplace. Um, And so I kind of saw the abstraction of this as, okay, there's all this information out there, right? There's like news websites, there's um, websites where you buy things, there's, you know, there's Amazon, but there's all these millions of other e-commerce sites. Like what if I could create a programmatic way to just buy X or answer the question, where's the nearest yoga class to me right now? Just tell me that, right? Um, So that I could have, uh, so that somebody could develop a product that gave you that answer. Mm-hmm. Well, where is the information about all of the yoga classes and their times in your area? It's on the web. But it's on the web in this gnarly, distributed way, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if you, to, if, like, if you were to do that right now, you're in Medellin, you wanna take yoga, what would be your process, right?
1: It's if, so true, I've tried to find, I think it was acro yoga here, tried to find basketball, tried to find a party to go to, but it's all these different places. Do I look on Facebook? Do I look here? And there's there's it's actually impossible, I think, to aggregate all the information.
0: Yeah, and 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 there's it's always changing. And it's and it's at all these different websites and web properties and hosted by all these different people and in all these different formats. And it just takes you time and effort every time you want to answer a question like this. And so I thought, wow, like with some sort of abstraction of this movie Time, movie movies on your plane thing you could which which that's all we were doing right we were answering the yoga the where's where can i take yoga near me question but for movies right and so 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 that's what led me to to think okay well how do we generalize this so that you could actually empower someone technical or non-technical to build something that answers a highly specific question or interacts with a highly specific system Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one example is what movies are playing on my flight. Okay. We, we actually solved that by going to all these gnarly different sources and, and, and getting them all into one format so that they came up nicely in a list when you asked, mm-hmm. right? Same, we could do the same thing for yoga. Mm-hmm. We could do the same thing for, I don't care where, but I want to order a turkey sandwich right now. Right. I want a turkey sandwich. Right. So imagine you do the same thing, but you now have to go to uh, transactional websites and submit information and get something back and submit payment information. But again, this is all just something that you could build an abstraction layer on top of and interact with these things programmatically so that you could do that. I actually at the time found some guy who had written a script so that from the command line he could just say, like, pseudo sandwich, and it would literally order a sandwich through Jimmy Johnson. is a something. command, right? Pseudo is a, it's just a... It's a way to, to give your, your command administrator rights. I think he, he used that as kind of a joke because um, it's, it's kind of like you're commanding your computer to do it for you, <laughs> like your administrative assistant. Go, go, get Order me sandwich. a sandwich. Yeah, exactly. Um, All right,
1: got it. So, so you developed um, the scraper that worked for everything. Uh, you put it on Chrome, and the thing that was really innovative, instead of having to implement this from programmatically from the command line or without any programming required someone could point and click on a website and say okay I want to make a a yoga studio scraper and they could point and click everywhere they wanted to they, they all the information they thought was important right so in your case before it was uh, flight details in this case you want to know like when, when the yoga yoga studio is open right definitely um so Ben had this interesting question for you why how did you decide to make that such a beautiful interface where you click on this information.
0: Well, I I think I think it was it was possible because I was coming it from it uh at it from a from the technical side, but I also you know, I'm also a designer, right? And so I have this user experience lens on everything. And so the technical aspect of how how you did the scraping and how we did it with the with the airline um movie thing was you, you basically have to look at the structure of the web page and you have to look at the what's called the document object model, which is the semantic markup of the HTML. If you actually view source on a web page in your browser, you'll see all the, the source code for the web page. And it comes in a highly structured format. Right? Of course, the structure is up to the original coder of the website, but there are conventions that most people follow. And of course, there are people that don't. And that makes doing this very hard. But um, if you see that structure, you can see kind of in an organized way what, what is the, the meaning of this content. It gives it semantics, right? It's not just like a bunch of words on the screen. It actually like organizes things into groups and lists and things like that.
1: And so this made it really easy for someone to figure out what they wanted. They didn't need to program anything. And you, when, when, when do you launch first? Yeah.
0: So so we so we built we built this prototype that allowed you to take that structure and automatically infer it from a click, um, and so we 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 built this first version um, when we got to California. So after our little tour of Southeast Asia, we went back to my parents in California, and we started working on this thing. We had a couple of existential crisis moments where we we're like, "Oh, what are we doing? We don't know anything about this." Like I I, I had never written a, a proper. Backend or or anything you know web web service or any of these things you know I was a I was a UI designer developer um, Pratap was non technical so it was just it was really uh, we questioned ourselves a lot in that in that early period but we we basically decided we were going to apply to Y Combinator um, which I think the applications were due in October or something like that and we we had gotten back there and late August, early September. So we had like a month to, to put together this application and build this prototype so that when we went in for an interview, if we got one, we had something to show them. Um, but of course we had not launched anything. We were this was just literally a prototype that that, that had a few capabilities uh, along the lines that we've been discussing. And so we, we we filled out our application. With the application you have to film a, you know a movie of yourselves like talking about it and stuff like that, which we took a hundred takes of. And um, we, we we heard back and we got an interview. And, and it, this was like, wow, this is this is really exciting. I was still kind of, uh, I don't know, this is this means we're gonna do the Silicon Valley thing. I haven't committed to this yet, um, but it was so exciting that we decided to go to the interview.
1: Yeah. What was the moment in the interview when you knew you you were in?
0: Yeah, there was. We actually uh, very uh, non-standard. Well, actually, I don't know how non-standard, but we actually went through an interview that was a total disaster. <laughs> This was, this room was stacked. This was like all the big people. And, and this was Paul Graham. This was, um, his wife. This, this was like the most, you know, serious partners. There were three different interview rooms and we got the one that, you know, the big one and it did not go well. These interviews are 10 minutes and you train for them kind of Ten with a, minutes. you get 10 minutes and you it's pitch flies? usually you your five or six of them. It's two of you, two of us. And there's no slides, there's no presentation, there's there's nothing that you can assume that you're going to be able to do, because before you even sit down in your seat, they are all questioning you at the same time, and you have to choose how to deal with that, and like who do I field first, and like actually Pratap, top you field those two people, I'll deal with these three, like it's just madness. So you
1: split up, you split up the questions. Split the room, do they do this on questions? purpose to put they you try, through the ringer? To yeah, see they're they're how trying to just
0: like. They're trying to yeah they're trying to see how you react to this type of um, situation, but also they 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 use it as a gauge for how uh, well you you know this content and how true it is because if you're given too much time to think about it you might be able to you know. Get your way out of some situation, but they—they're just firing at you so fast. They won't even let you finish your thought. Once they're like, "Okay, he had something to say about that," I'm just gonna ask the next question. You know, it's like not even about what you're saying. It's just like how quickly are you from the gut saying these things? Um, and for whatever reason, the first one went off the rails. We were caught off guard. We were trying to explain it. They didn't understand what it meant. I was like, "Can we just show you?" And they're like, "No, I don't want to see it. Tell me about it. What is it? What is it? Like, explain it to me. Like, it's, explain it in English, you know?" And and and, and, <laughs> so and we insulting. kept we kept trying to like it's this. It does it helps you make an API from. what They're like, "What? Well, this doesn't make any sense." Like, what? you know, this type of stuff. And then they're like, "Oh, it's ten minutes. All right, see you guys." And we're like, "Oh my God, we fa- we failed miserably." Like, this is like, well, that was our run. You know, that was cool. Whatever. Um. And we sat outside on the bench, and we were just kind of, like, dejected, because we, we knew this did not go well. Um, and uh, the woman who was, like, administering the whole thing kind of came out, and she was like, they, they want you to come back for a second interview later today, which we had never, we didn't even know was possible. We had never heard of this. Um, and we we're like, wow, that's crazy. Um, I guess they haven't decided no yet. Uh, so we actually, we went for, like, a, went for a run. And we got, tried to clear our heads and whatever, and just like shake off that that interview. And we went back in the afternoon, and we had a different room with a different like. This is a big room. This is like eight people. And um, that interview that that interview went very well. Uh, and and the moment that that was, I think, particularly helpful is when uh, Sam Altman, um, who then became the. He took over for Paul Graham once, once Paul stepped down at the end of our batch, actually. Um, Sam grabbed my computer without, without letting me. I was, I was planning on kind of just showing them how it worked. And before I could like do anything myself, he just grabbed my computer out of my hands. He's like, let me just do it. Like You keep talking to them. And I was panicking at the moment because this thing didn't. I mean, this was a prototype that, that was, I had tested on a handful of web pages. Um, and and he 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 chose a website, went there, and he pointed and clicked on a bunch of stuff. he totally understood how it worked um made made the uh API for the website, so extracted the data and there was a little button we had put in there for um i don't know kind of demo appeal that that say turn the, turn this data into a mobile web app um so he clicked that and bam, right on the screen was this like nicely formatted. Uh, phone with uh, all the content that he had extracted in 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 a really clear, easy easy digestible format.
1: Do You remember the website? I can't. I can't remember the website. It was, like, it was website. like yoga studio open at seven a.m. Yeah. Or something. It was, okay.
0: It was just some. Yeah. It was it was something you know that was popular at the time or whatever. And we were. I just remember feeling so lucky that it worked on mm-hmm. this website. Um, and he, he 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 finished in like sixty seconds through this process and was like, "Wow, this is powerful." And and that kind of like didn't matter what happened in the interview after that point um and and so we got the call that night um and we got funded which was really the same exciting same
1: day your tenure reviews oh, yeah. and yeah. got accepted the same day they, they, is they it always you, that way?
0: They, they always tell you that day that um, is incredible they call you that night if you got it they email you if you didn't um so when we we, we were pretty excited like my mom was screaming like you know we were all happy at at, 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 my house. And, um, so that kind of changed everything right there. You know, we, we now had, you know, the way YC works is they take 7%. Or I think the models changed now, but at the time they take 7% and they give you something like $120,000. Um, and that, that for us was like, wow, like we now look at all this money. Like we, we, we we're doing this, like, you know, we, we uh, we've We've been legitimized, and we now have a plan for the next three months. we've got to do this thing. we don't know what it means. we don't know what we're, where it's going to go, but like that 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 started the company. You know what I mean um, and so we hadn't but to your earlier question, we had not launched we did not have a product we didn't even have a brand or a website or a name. I think we were calling it hyperdrive at this point um and so we we uh, we go for our first office hours. So YC is basically a, a very loose format accelerator. Like there's no classes, there's no office space, there's no, uh, you know, it's none of this stuff. There's once a week you go there for dinner, and then whenever you feel it's necessary, you ask one of the partners to have a 15 minute meeting with you so you can just ask as many questions as you can about like how screwed you are at that present moment, and, and they will help you through those to the best of their ability. So our first office hours was with Sam, and we we went up to the city to see him actually because uh, he was working there that week. Um, and we we sit down and he's like, "All right, so like you guys, you guys launch yet?" And we're like, "No, like you saw our prototype in the in the interview, like that that's it, that's where we are." And he's like, "Are, are you serious? Like you haven't you're not ready to launch? Like this is this is this is not good. Like we're gonna have a huge problem if you don't launch soon." we're like wow okay um we don't feel like we're ready at all like i said we don't have a name we don't have a website we don't have a. it doesn't like users can't sign up we don't have anything um and he's like well figure it out you have 10 days and if you haven't done it in 10 days you're going to come back and you're going to sit in this chair and you're going to explain to me why you haven't done it and it w- he was almost yelling at us like it was it was it was a it was, a sli- it was like a shock you know it was a wake up call um and and this was I think this was, like, around, um, Christmas time, right? Um, so this, this was, like, okay, for the next 10 days, um, we've got to, we've got to work our asses off, and we did, like, we, we slept very little, and we came up with a name, branding, uh, created the entire, like, you know, sign-up experience, uh, you know, documentation. We had to explain to people how to use this. Like we, we, didn't, you know, all of these things that we didn't really think about. You know, we knew eventually we needed to do, but like all these things had to happen in these ten days. You know, um, and we came up with this blog post. This was actually from a friend in uh, that we had met in in our YC batch who actually had this idea, and it was brilliant. And I think it really contributed to the splash we made when we launched, where our launch blog post saying, "Here we are," was itself a web page that was already in, uh, like had already been activated with our technology on top of it. So you could point and click throughout the blog post and extract information from the blog post as you were reading it. And you could kind of learn how it worked and see its value proposition as you were reading about what it was.
1: That's incredible.
0: And it was just like, he was like, you know what you should do? You should make your blog post, like, scrapable. And, and, and we did, and it was just, it was awesome. Like, people were just like, holy, this is so cool. It, like, n- it understood the structure of the table, or it understood the list. And, it, like, because we had all these algorithms that would figure out the, the stuff you were trying to get and, like, save a lot of your time by automatically inferring the structure and all these things. Um, and, we, and we showed off those capabilities in this blog post. Put it on Hacker News, and it just blew up like we stayed up hacker all news night. is
1: the uh the news service from y combinator
0: yeah it's like it's a, it's an associated kind of people post news stories in technology or or they announce their companies or whatever they share companies they've discovered and people upvote them if if they like them and then a whole crazy discussion ensues and the more something gets talked about and the more people upvote it the higher it gets on the list and if you get to the top of the list you get stuck there and just like it's there for and if you're at the top of Hacker News, like people all over the world are seeing this thing, right? Because it's just such a often read resource. And it's this like very bare bones, like it's just a straight it's like, kinda like Reddit. It's just a straight list of stories, right? And we never made it to number one, which actually really sucked. But we got we got a massive number of upvotes, but we never made it to number one because Sam Altman had a blog like a very popular blog post that day and it was just pinned at the top. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, in any case it was very it was a very like powerful launch for us we were we had a on-site live chat um and we were talking to people from all over the world who were signing up and asking questions and saying this is so cool i can't wait to use this for my project or for my work or like whatever um i think in the first 24 hours we had something like 5,000 signups
1: that's incredible so you launch and the, the 120k you get from Y Combinator starts to seem like very small money pretty quickly
0: well, yes and no. Um, yes, because of the amount of money that we started to raise, but no, because we, never, we still didn't have any way of spending any of this money because cause during Y Combinator, you're so busy. Um, that you 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 don't you can't think about hiring you can't think about getting an office space you can't think about anything that would cost you money because we were at, still at my parents we were still working twenty four seven we didn't have friends we didn't do anything.
1: So tell me about tell us about the uh, experience of raising money because it was it seemed like something straight out of Silicon Valley the HBO TV show. It's uh, what happened.
0: It, it is it it's an extremely accurate. Uh, retelling of of the way things work in the valley, and and it, and it may seem absurd and funny at times if you're watching the show, but it's it is exactly how things work. Um, and and I think the you know there's a, there is this one episode I remember where there's all of these investors that are, you know, feeding off of each other and 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 competing with each other to give the term sheet to the company and all these things, and and we we basically experienced exactly that we. Um, after this launch th- made such a splash, kind of people heard about it, right? And and um, people realized that there was there was value being created here, and so I think the first wave was um, the first investor outside of YC was was Ron Conway with um, SV Angel. Um, we had
1: some, and he said, "You shoot him the product," and he's like yeah tell was, me where to wire the money yeah
0: it was it was literally within a y you, you know thirty seconds of giving a quick demo of hey, this is what we're building, you know, like check it out and whatever he's like, yeah, give me your bank account number like let's do this and and we were like we were just kind of confused, you know and so you
1: had a who's who can you give some of the names that were on the list of your your early investors
0: ah uh, yeah i mean we we well basically it was it was all of the the y c well, not all of but a, a large number of the y c uh, partners um we're all personally investing um we had sv angel um we eventually had uh term sheets from a lot of the major uh vc firms in in the valley like uh Kostla, like sequoia sequoia actually came and drove up to our house
1: your parents uh, house
0: or my yeah my parents house and and rang the doorbell and 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 said you know we want to talk to ryan and for top and and kind of sat down for a tea with 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 my dad and, and us and um, explained the, the the term sheet for five million dollars uh, to us and, and we were just like oh, what has happened I mean this thing was this was just five
1: million dollars five million dollars less than a month sheet. ago Sam had said if you don't launch in ten days we're gonna have a problem yeah it was this so was, this is the ups and downs
0: this it was cr- it was crazy it was it was just absolute madness we also had a call from Google where Google was like you know what we're you know, in so many words, you know they—they they were being all weird and shifty about it. But they—they're they're basically we—we want to acquire you. Um, and at this stage, what that means is we want to hire the two of you so that you can keep doing this inside our walls, and we're going to pay you handsomely uh, in the process. But um, YC advised us to kind of just say no to that and move on. You know, we—we we were on to bigger things. Okay. <laughs> was was there was their rationale? Um, that also interestingly came into um uh the context was our age for whatever reason they're like look if you guys were you know 22 just out of college first first startup you know i'd say take this deal make the money work at google and then you know in in a couple years like go you know round two with like this this under your belt right but but we were 30 at the time and he was like oh i don't know how many startups you guys are really going
1: to you, know, you kind look, of getting long in the tooth. you kind yeah. of getting old now, 30 yeah, years old.
0: exactly. It's crazy. We were well above average age for YC, and they just like, didn't know how to deal with that. And so, so they just told us, you guys are old. Uh, you, you know, you're probably not going to do this
1: again. But um, the reason why people were so excited was because this, it felt like it could be a Facebook idea or a Google idea because you were indexing the entire web in a way that humans cared about. Yeah. So you had humans pointing at different things, being like, "I care about this. I care about this. I care about this." Of all the things that people dump on web pages, there is only a few things that we really care about. And you had people doing all this work for you, exactly. And so people thought this could be.
0: I mean, it's it's it, it all comes back to that that how how I started talking about it with the, you know like this yoga question for example, like or the airline movie question, right? Like, there is very specific data of value on a web page, but there is a ton of other stuff, right? and and how do you get how do you get to learn what is that valuable piece of data what is the structure of it and then what's the query that you would make against that data to get the answer to the specific question we were collecting all of that we were mm-hmm. collecting all of that for arbitrary data right so so at scale if we had enough people doing this and contributing you know effectively crowdsourcing the problem we would be able to answer any question about anything right we would have a very specific set of data that's very different from something like what Google has, which is index all the text on a website, index all the links between the websites, and figure out which is the website you're looking for. So they could direct you to the website. We could direct you to the actual data inside that website that mattered.
1: Mm -hmm. So in the the arc of your story, this has gone very far from when you might have had an impact on two to ten mathematicians somewhere in the world uh, at Frog, where you could come up with great ideas, but they might not be implemented at all. Incredibly frustrating. This actually seemed to be important to a whole lot of people. Really suddenly, yeah. And it's like just a literal hockey stick. It's almost like a upwards cliff or something like that. Hockey stick's not even steep enough to how this was, right? Hmm. So, okay. So, um, just to wrap up the fundraising, I remember you said that uh, you got this term sheet. You talked to Sam. Sam said, "I think Peter Thiel can give you a better deal."
0: That's exactly what happened. Uh, we, we, we kind of had this um, knee-jerk reaction every time something like this happened, which was happening every day at this point. Um, just call Sam. We just say, term sheet from Sequoia, $5 million. What do we do? <laughs> and within a minute, um, Sam uh, replied and said, hold. I'll get you something better. And uh, we, uh, we waited. We were on standby. We, we told Sequoia, you know, hold on, we need a couple of days to think about this. And, and he put us in touch with Peter and, and we had this, uh, conversation
1: the same day, right?
0: Same day. We, we went for a swim. I remember. And when we got out of the pool, um, we had a text on our phone, on my phone that said, uh, Hey, it's Peter Teal. Um, do you have time to meet this afternoon? <laughs> like, Oh my God, this is crazy. Um, so, uh, you know, we were a little starstruck, uh, we were both inspired he he was he hadn't yet released his book but he was um everyone knew that his book was coming because it was the you know the uh collected notes from the class at stanford um and pratap had read like all these notes religiously you know he he could quote things from from peter Thiel. yeah me too um so so we were we just went into this meeting kind of like oh man we're we're meeting the, we're meeting the the guy himself you know this is the guy who like invests in you know not just like the next company, but in, in things that matter, you know, like, you know, they have that, that quote on founders fund website that says, you know, we, we, we've been waiting for flying cars and all we got is 140 characters. You know, he's got, they, 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 they really look for, for big ideas that are going to change the world. And we're like, wow, this is like, we're, we're in the mix here. This is crazy. Um, and, and the conversation was, was awesome. It was inspiring. Like Peter was, I mean, he's one of the smartest people, uh, that either of us had ever met he kind of immediately locked in on on what we were working on why it mattered and he kind of grabbed a pen and paper and he drew this chart of of what we had to do over the next 12 to 24 months and how that looked um, with respect to our future fundraising how it looked to the value we were creating how it looked you know this is this is the plan and I think I think this is where it's going to get really big um, and and so we, we really liked that level of uh, kind of just depth that that he brought to the table. He just really I mean we had had conversations about our business with the other investors, but he kind of just got to the point with with a, like a very tangible plan, and and we liked that. Um, so we we decided to go with with Peter, and we took the rest of our round from him.
1: And he said something like. Let me know how much you need between two and five, and what valuation.
0: Yeah, he was basically just, just, just do, just, just yeah, tell me, tell me what, and I'll wire the money. Um, uh, I'm sure, you know, the terms will be fine because, um, cause, you know, he'd done this enough that he knew that for companies this size, it's just like, just let's get it done, you know. And that was another thing that that the partners were when we talked to Sam and, and Michael about this afterwards, it was like we we kind of didn't know what to do because Sequoia is a big name and, and we actually really liked the partner that we were working with at Sequoia or not working with yet, but would have been working with because he, he just, first of all, he came to our house, you know, he showed a lot of like personal initiative, but he, he really cared uh, about us and, and he was really going to just, he was going to work with us and, and for us and, and that was clear. And so it was just a very difficult decision between these two. And, In the end, uh, YC was really influential in us deciding um, to go with Peter because Peter would be more hands-off, because Peter would, look, do you want an investor who's kind of just, he's here to to support you and, like, you're going to do your thing, or do you want people that are just kind of, like, in your business, you know? Um, Because it's true. Like, if you work with, Sequoia builds huge companies. They build huge companies, and this guy specifically builds enterprise software companies. So it's like, that's the direction of this company. If you go with them, right, and it's going to be heavily influenced, and that kind of scared us. It didn't sound so great. And working with Peter, where it's like you're going to, do, it's, you, it's your own destiny, anything you want. And Peter's just like the guy who you can meet with every three months, and he's going to like say something inspiring to you, right? And that just sounded right. So,
1: and you decided to go with Peter over Sequoia, and you said that might have been a mistake.
0: Yeah, I think just, it, 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 I mean, it was our first time, right? What do you know? And and I think we we just didn't know how hard these things are um, especially building a company yeah building a company and given our experience thus far was ridiculous like it just it just kind of got handed to us i mean of course we worked hard for it um, and we had an interesting vision but we hadn't started building a company yet you know and we you said
1: it was a mistake because he he was so hands-off that he wasn't available for yeah, advice it, on hiring, advice on...
0: Yeah, and it's like he was a busy guy. He was going on his book tour. Like, if we needed to meet him, it was like scheduling with his, you know, through his administrative staff took, you know, several weeks, you know, to months to get some time with him. And, you know, if we had someone that we could just call every day and be like, this is what we're facing today. We're screwed. Like, help, you know, it probably would have been better off because little did we know, you know, and this was really naive. Uh, building a company is so much more than what we had done so far. You know, there's so many more aspects to it um, that were going to be so much more challenging for us, in particular, um, not having gone through it before. Mm-hmm.
1: And you mentioned as well, there's pros and cons of Y Combinator. Can you go through those and how yeah. someone would know? Let's say someone listening to this, how would they know in advance whether it's it's the right thing for them or not? And and how to how to how to value value their advice
0: yeah so what i always tell people when they ask me this question um do you recommend yc is is of course you know it depends um which is not helpful on the surface but but the deeper answer is uh, it, it depends a lot on where you are in the life of your company and what you've kind of decided about um your company thus far and so I, I think it was too early for us in retrospect. I think going through, what YC is basically like gasoline that you pour on a, on a fire, um, because it's an incredible uh, exposure machine. Um, it has a, an amazing reputation. This exposure is very valuable both in, in, the, in the press context to the public. So if you're trying to get in front of customers, it's amazing especially if you're trying to get in front of t- customers in the tech industry. <laughs> They're all following Y Combinator and the startups. Um, and if you're trying to get in front of investors, like it's, it's insane the amount of resources and power that that, that that brand and that experience has in that context. Um, but the sacrifice is you're pouring gasoline on a fire that you know may or may not be very well defined. Right? And in our case, being three weeks old at the time that we joined, um, we hadn't made a lot of decisions about what we were looking for, and and what kind of company we were building, and what kind of lifestyle we wanted, and 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 what our goals were, what our business model might be. Like none of this stuff. And when you pour, you know, you've got the embers there, and you start dumping the gasoline, like this is just a it's a mess. You know, it's not, it's not clear what what's what. And so I think we 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 you know we grew too fast. We we. Um, we were forced uh, to make quick decisions on things we didn't really think about and we didn't, didn't align with our values and didn't align with, you know, what we wanted. Can you say
1: more about, what do you mean you made decisions that didn't align with your values? That seems like a very important thing that would make you not want to work someplace.
0: Um, yeah, I, I think it's just that we, we fell into the, the standard definition of, of Silicon Valley tech startup and the, um, and the the lifestyle and the work cadence and everything that that came with that, like we learned habits solely in yC like a lot of the companies in our batch had existed for a year and then they went to y c so they had formed like a company culture and a, and a and a cadence and a like a marathon pace of how we're gonna do this and and sustain in a sustainable way and and we had learned everything in the sprint you know in the in the crazy sprint and so we we knew nothing other than that, and so we went into, you know, real life as a company in San Francisco post YC, with all of these habits, and we didn't know anything else. So we were we were running out of steam faster than we could even, you know, we were working. We put so much pressure on ourselves. There was like no way we were going to take vacation like any time in the next, you know, there was no that we didn't even know how to reason about dealing with our employees and like well do we push this sort of culture onto them too this seems like they're not super receptive to that in some cases and you know if we want to hire a diverse group of people like people that have kids and you know younger people and older people and all these different types of things like wh- what does that mean like how do we how do we do this scrappy startup thing where everybody works you know 24/7 and nobody has a life and like we you know th- all of these things like t- not having sorted through them before was, was, was really hard for us.
1: And somewhere in the middle, I saw there's a, an article where you moved to Japan for a month. Yeah. Why?
0: So, so this was, uh, um, and how did that work out? So, so I, I would say overall positively. Um, so, so the why is I, uh, this was sort of a, uh, Pratap and I both had this, um, but I think I was more of a, uh, catalyst here. It was, I, we travel a lot. I like like going around the world. I love being in international contexts. I love living in China. And I really hated the idea that I started my own company partially so that I could have freedom. And now I'm stuck in San Francisco in this office working more hours than I can count. And what, what the hell am I, this sucks. Like this isn't what I signed up for. And so part of it was like a backlash that, you know, I'm getting at, you know what, I'm doing this differently. Um, and so it was about it was about getting um out of that context and 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 inspiring the team to think about this in a different way
1: and the team really in, enjoyed it yeah
0: like we had we had uh, i think we were eight by the time we went um one of the one of the guys brought his family had um, someone
1: anyone done this before any company that inspired not, you to do this or it seems like a pretty risky move
0: yeah in retrospect it kind of i don't know if it was how did you risky. announce
1: this to the team how did what was that
0: well we talked we talked about it a lot we we had, we involved the team in the decision it, it wasn't like okay guys you're going to you're going to here's your ticket you know sorry we didn't tell you about this but this is how it's gonna go um we talked about it we got approval from like everyone you know we want to make sure no one no one felt really uncomfortable with the idea everyone was pretty excited about it you know the deal was We'll pay for the airfare and we'll pay for the the housing. You're going to pay for your life there, just like you would here. Um, the food going out, like whatever it is, and uh, we're going to work the same number of hours that we work here. And other than that, all bets are off. Like we're we're in Japan.
1: Was there any unexpected opportunities that popped up just being in a different yeah, location? Yeah. So
0: so one of the reasons we, we we chose Japan. We had we had three reasons we chose Japan. Um, one was we had an employee who actually had a Japanese wife and kids, who spend the entire summer in Tokyo. And so it made sense, like, oh, well, your family's there, so why don't why don't we go there? Um, another reason is I really like Japan and uh, was, was pushing for that. Um, I didn't spend that much time there when I lived in China, and I wanted to spend more. And the third reason, um, arguably the most important, and the one that we kind of used publicly to rationalize the trip. Um, was that it's actually, it actually was our second largest user base outside of the U.S. It was, there was just a lot of people in Japan using our product. And, and that had nothing to do with the fact that it was called Kimono Labs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we wanted to better understand that. We wanted to like, connect with the local entrepreneurs and, and, and see, okay, in an international community, why are people drawn to this more than in other places? Um, we ended up with like really interesting meetings there and really interesting, like we went, we, we got invited to this startup meetup event with like a speaker or whatever, and I was like, oh, this will be cool to go. And 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 when we got there, that's that's when we realized. I mean, this Japan communication can be. Um, interesting and spotty we realized we were the guests of honor <laughs> and we this whole thing for that. Yeah, was, was literally for being that. advertised as like the founders of kimono labs are in tokyo like they're here to speak to you and like all this stuff and so like we basically that that was crazy like we didn't see that coming we thought we were like attending a talk we had to give one um and met a lot of really cool people that were really excited about y combinator and about kimono and all this stuff, and we ended up with meetings with, like, Yahoo Japan and other big corporations there that wanted to do big deals with us and stuff. And it was just, like, a really just interesting experience, and and ultimately, actually, we did have business opportunities that came out of that trip. Um, But I think most importantly, it was just, like, a really good growing and bonding experience for the team. Um, Some of the people on the team were, were really young and hadn't traveled internationally before. They really, really valued this experience in terms of like their life. Um, but we, we came back from that just being tighter as a unit. We were very close, uh, culturally, um, as a company.
1: Did you intentionally make a culture or did it just kind of happen?
0: It just kind of happened. And I, and I think, um, I don't, I, this is one of the things that, you know, if slash when I, I I do this again, um, I'm, I'm going to do with a little bit more intention. Uh, we struggled with this a lot throughout the life of the company um ending up with culture that we're like wow that, like this this happened without us even knowing it and we're not sure we like this aspect of the culture um and then and on the other hand sometimes we ended up with things where it's like this is really cool like people people actually really were were very uh tight at the company it wasn't it wasn't a place where it's like you go to work these are your colleagues and then you go home and hang out with your friends it was a company where it was like these are your friends and I think that was good and bad. I think that, that caused a lot of, um, tension and, as the company grew and, and that, that made it actually hard for new people to come in. Right. Um, and it, and it, and it created sort of, I wouldn't call it hostile, but I'd call it unapproachable environment as, as the company grew. Um, and, and I think we want to, we would want to be careful in the future if, 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 if I were to do that again. Um, But I also, I think what happened was Pratap and I are very similar. You know, we're very, um, uh, adventurous, risk-taking, international. Like we're, we're, we're kind of like, we do lots of different things, you know, like he was a nearly an Olympic triathlete and, you know, and if he does something, he does it pretty seriously. And, you know, I, I'm the same way. And we're, we're kind of also just like jack of all trades kind of people. Like we weren't necessarily specialists in one thing. Um, we ended up hiring a lot of people like us and that that was not intentional we only realized it when we were like 10 15 people that crap we have a bunch of us here <laughs> and that's a bunch of like kind of visionary smart jack of all trades people but nobody's like specializing in anything and nobody's taking ownership of just one thing mm-hmm. you know that's too many ideas people you know this kind of thing mm-hmm. um, which again like in 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 retrospect we probably should have had a little more intensity. So that
1: that comes in, and especially as you try to scale this, and it, the compute power required to run Kimono is pretty intense. Yeah. And you don't have a deep background in programming. Yep. Uh, backends for sure, um, or even maybe frontends. You had less, exp- you know, some experience at least.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this was um this was one of the biggest issues with the company and ultimately like uh what what led to to some of the things that happened down down the road and we really never solved it. Um so I and this started week 2 like these things and and so basically I hobbled together with uh with some help from one of one of our friends a, an architecture that could kind of do this scraping um, at some amount of scale. <laughs> and, uh, and we had it on Heroku so we could put the, the slider up um, to give ourselves more compute power as we, as we grew. But like, I just didn't know enough about systems design to, to do this in the right way. And so we ended up in a situation where our servers would go down, our database would lock up, things would run out of memory. And as a result, the, the, the service would be unavailable. And this happened all the time, and I just kept trying to hire my way out of this problem. And I think the the biggest problem that we faced with trying to hire um, is that Pratap and I, coming from our backgrounds, um, were not technical people. You know, I came from a design background. Pratap came from a management consultant background. We were technical in the sense that I studied math, he studied physics. I could code. I built this thing. But it was very different from like a proper, you know, Google engineer who who who's like an inspiring engineering leader. And one thing I learned about the Valley, and this is probably true around the world, is good engineers want to work with inspiring engineering leaders. They they don't want to work for non-engineers. Um, there's just something about the culture of tech, and people will only follow someone. At least technical people will only follow someone that they consider more technical. More technically enabled than themselves, um, and so we found it very hard to hire good people in in that particular. We hired really good people, but not good people that, that of this of this category. And the other problem is that we just, even if we could, we didn't have the network. Like we we working for McKinsey and working for Frog, it's not like we spent time at a tech company. You know, our other friends of ours who are successful entrepreneurs who hired powerful tech teams, they worked for Google for two years. They worked for this other tech company for two years, Facebook, whatever. Mm -hmm. And so they had people they had worked with that were good that they could bring on. And we didn't, like, Frog doesn't have engineers. McKinsey doesn't have engineers. So we were just, like, in our network, it was like we were going blind. Mm -hmm. And, And so... This ever elusive problem of scaling this technology solution to the amount of demand—we were, you know, we had so many users actively scraping sites using our platform that we were, you know, expected to scrape millions of pages per minute. And, and it was
1: all free. This was all provided. And it was free. all free. And this was part At of the, the advice of whom? The
0: magical business model that our that our investors and YC had had kind of constructed as part of our story during during YC was like you guys are indexing the internet you know you're building a copy of the web that's better than Google's that's the value don't charge for this spread this as fast as humanly possible and you know what we might have been able to had we had we kept up with the scaling problems but but when you when your system goes down and you can't scrape a million pages a minute people get frustrated and they start using it less and they don't depend on it as much and stuff like this and so for for those reasons as we looked at our growth over the course of the first year, it just it wasn't hitting those numbers that Peter drew on that piece of paper in that first in that first meeting, and that and that those numbers were you know they were a little bit arbitrary, but they they were indicative that that goal was indicative of whether or not we would scale at the pace uh, that you would need in order to raise another round of money and get to the point where you've so in actually terms built of this number
1: index. Of, in terms of number of pages, how far short were you like half a um, tenth?
0: I, I'd say we were between, we were probably about third to a half um, by the time that they had like set the goal, right? Mm-hmm. They'd set the goal in terms of kind of like active users type thing, and I think we got to about half of what, a little less than half of, mm-hmm. of what the plan was, um, and and that was, I, I think, in large part due to our inability to to meet demand technically, mm-hmm. you know, like had we just smoothly offered everything that everyone was asking for, you know, I think we are losing a lot of users because of that. And so, um, yeah, that had a lot to do with that.
1: And that had a lot to do with hiring the right people oh, yeah. to do it.
0: and And we, we went through several very specific hires to solve this very ex- specific problem. And, like, they just, they couldn't do it. They weren't the right people. And it's not surprising they weren't the right people, you know. The right people wouldn't want to work for us, even if we could meet them, and we
1: couldn't meet them. So... That's that's a fascinating problem, to to have. So how what's your mind? How was your mind at the time? Because I I know from running a startup, it's you don't have time to think. You don't have time to feel. You don't have time to like breathe. It even seems like like use the bathroom. Yeah. Um, how how was your how 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 where was your mind? What's what um, space were you at?
0: Well, mental health was. Probably the inverse graph from 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 growth. Uh, it, it just was not good um, for me personally. I, I was I was of course working a lot. Um, I also was spread very thin. Like I just remember in this period, uh, once we had hired, let's say, fifteen plus people, um, we first of all we made a terrible mistake that everyone advised against of opening an office in a second location. The only reason why we did this is we had specific talent that we wanted that wasn't willing or able to move across uh, from New York. Both Pratap and I had strong New York network, stronger than San Francisco, because that's where we lived when we lived together. Um, And so we wanted to make a few key hires uh, of people that are living in New York. And they just just didn't want to move back to the Bay or didn't want to move to the Bay. And so we were like, you know what, we want these people. We're going to set up a small satellite office. They're going to work out of that office. And I'm going to fly and meet these people whenever I can. And at least we'll get the people. Um, that ended up being just a disaster, just because just, like, managing two different groups of people, communication issues between them, like weird adversarial things cropping up between them, and just, just, just dynamics that you just would have never thought of. But were literally warned, like we were warned, of. The, we were warned by Peter, like, don't do this. Like, never do this. It's not good. D- these are the reasons why. And we we're like, yeah, but I think we can make it work because we really want the people. We were wrong. He was right. Um, but I, I also was spread, so I was spread thin geographically. So I was kind of flying back and forth during that time. But I was also spread thin because I, uh, having built the entire version of the product in in very unsound architectural uh, ways. um, Anyone who needed to make changes to aspects of the code kind of had to talk to me and figure out what the hell I was thinking in in a certain aspect, you know. And I learned a ton during this, probably the second year, um, because we had brought people on that at least could identify that as a problem and help me solve that problem. So we put a lot of effort into walk up, um, walk up usability of the uh, development infrastructure, which I never, I never would have thought of that as that as being like one of the most important aspects. And you know, in the future, in my walk career, up
1: usability, meaning that someone can just show up, see the code, and know and know understand. how to plug in. Yeah. You know,
0: know how to add stuff, know how to change stuff, know how to fix bugs, and you know, it changes the way you think about the code that you write. You have to think about not the most efficient way, but the most readable way. You know, and that that, like, that just opened my eyes, like, wow, you really, it's not about commenting every line, like, definitely not. Like, I really don't um, advocate for that at all. But it's, it's more about, can I reason, reasonably understand where this code is going if, as long as I know this language? Um, and so it's making little decisions about like, you know what, rather than compressing that into this really cool, like, efficient algorithm in one line that I can, you know, instead of three lines, leave it as three lines. Because the three lines is just like more direct and readable. And, mm-hmm. and so little things like that, as well as just breaking the code apart into a more microservices architecture. So when you touch one thing, you're not putting the entire thing at risk. Um, I built what's called a monolith, and that's like a big no-no these days. Um, again, something I wouldn't have learned uh, had I not gone through this. But I basically put everything into one massive code base. Meaning if you tried to un, you know, do something, you might break three other things. And and breaking those through other things then means it's harder to put those back together and and, and whether or not that you're introducing new bugs is really unclear. And so you want really clear boundaries between different functionalities. So again, like um, learning that, but but I'd say we got better at that, but we never really Mm. solved it. So you had
1: all this momentum going in. You had all this cash still in the bank. There's no shortage of, of money, at least from the seed round. But it, eventually you decided to sell to Palantir. So what changed there?
0: Yeah, so um, basically I think as, as part of this, this golden number that Peter had put in front of us and, and our inability to hit that number, like I said, we got to less than half of, of what we wanted in the amount of time allocated. The time allocated was arbitrary. We weren't out of money. We had lots of money. We had raised more seed money than most companies. Um, but we realized, we kind of, we kind of realized, I don't think this is going to work. You know, like w- we, we knew more about this than anyone, right? Like we were, we were living it. And I think that the the key insight was if we really looked at our most avid users, the people that would be willing to pay us for it, they, they used it so much or they needed it so much. It, there was something very common across the board and it didn't matter exactly how much they were willing to pay, but they expected complete results. They, 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 they were 100% dissatisfied if you gave them 95% of what they asked for, and they were 100% satisfied if you gave them 100% of what they asked for, right? And this was true for a customer who'd be willing to pay you five bucks a month, and this was true for a customer that'd be willing to pay $50,000 a month, right? So if you look at that fact, and you come to that conclusion, it's pretty clear what you have to do with the business. You can't, you can't give your time and energy to the $5 a month person, right? Because your time and energy is required because people expect 100% of the solution. And so what we did is we ended up kind of pivoting a little bit. Um, not so much the, the technology or the service we were providing, but the customers we were selling to and what we were selling. And that that came in the form of an enterprise software solution. Um, not just software, but like an enterprise just service solution. You want data? We'll get you data, period. And we'll get you a complete picture of that data in the way that you're asking for it. And if you want updates on that data on this cadence, we got you. If you want alerts when it changes, we got you. If you want it delivered in this format, we got you, right? So it became much more a... Um,
1: and that was making money. That was... On yeah. track to make be oh, profitable.
0: Absolutely. People are willing to pay for that, right? Um, people are willing to pay for that because that becomes a buy over build decision for a company. Um, outsource an entire capability that's eating up their engineering hours and, and you know crushing them in some way. And it says, oh, awesome. This company's got our back on this. We've got the data we need to operate. We're going to now focus on our core capabilities. And we could charge value based pricing that way and, and that meant for bigger companies for which this was very valuable we charged you know tens of thousands dollars a month and for smaller companies you know we, we we made sure that it aligned with our amount of effort um, and we charged you know hundreds of dollars a month um, we never went down to like the low end though right because it didn't make any sense uh, and, and 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 like you said this this was on its way to profitability this is a very sound business model it was very easy to run
1: and the difference here is that you're not you don't own the data anymore so you can't index the web yeah so it's a pretty big decision to it, switch to this um, business service enterprise service from indexing the web obviously maybe you can be more profitable sooner but you won't be able to raise as much vc money in the next round
0: yep so so i think i think we thought about that in two ways um one was because we're not growing at the rate that makes the indexing the web story compelling, like that story had lost its twinkle, right? Because like, if you really looked at the numbers, you'd be like, oh, they're not going to index the web, right? Or they'll index the web in 50 years, right? Whatever it is. Um, But the other thing is like, maybe not now, but later, right? Like there was nothing that that meant doing this now meant that we couldn't do that later.
1: Right. Because the timing is so important. Yeah. Even even now I think you're saying there's there's different services that have popped up that might make it more possible now than than it was. Yeah,
0: like I think the technologies available at the time, the talent available, just the like general knowledge of the space and and also consolidation of web technologies and how websites are are built these days. Um all that's changing and you know that this this whole thing might be easier to do today for mm-hmm. cheaper for faster. Um I think what we realized is what we were going to get better at doing this activity through this kind of enterprise lens. And we could use all of those learnings and that technology developed to go there once the time was right. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the the plan is the time right now. It could be, um, it could be. And I've, and I've been thinking about it to be honest, cause it's cause I stepped away from it for a while and, and, uh, worked at Palantir and, and now I'm, now I'm working on, on some payment stuff, but, it could be, It very much could be.
1: Yeah, I wonder. I wonder how you would know, because there are other companies that have built similar to what you've built, kind of copied what you did, even copied your user interface, where you point and click at different things, so it's very easy for the consumer. But they all pivoted as well to enterprise. Is that right?
0: Yep. Everyone. Everyone in the space. I mean, we we had a couple. I'd call them competitors. And it was really funny. Like we'd just watch them like hit feature parody with us every time we'd come up with some zany thing. Like oh, we're gonna make it do this. And we, I just remember talking about it, you know, like in our in our little office and being like, let's let's make this feature. And we we'd we'd make it and we'd like do a press release or whatever. And then like, you know, a couple months later, these other companies would be like, we do this. You know, it was like cool. We were like setting the, um. And so when we when we. Um, when we were acquired by Palantir and and we we shut down our service because um, that was required as part of the acquisition terms, um, all these companies came out with like blog posts saying, "Come here, Kimono Labs users. Uh, we we do all these same things. Like for this Kimono feature, here's our kimono, here's our feature. For this Kimono feature, here's our feature." You know, um, but it was really interesting to see in the years that that followed that no matter what their model was. They ended up squarely in the same place we were mm-hmm. you got to sell to high-end enterprise for high price because no other business model, business model nobody else figured out another business model
1: and that's where the first half of our podcast ended We'll pick it up again to talk about Ryan's current startup